0: Well, good morning. 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 Praise God from whom surprises flow. (laughs) This morning, I want to tell you about uh, something that happened a few years back as I was uh, trying to get home to Wilmore from a trip that I had been on. I was flying back, uh, flying into the Lexington Airport, actually, uh, from a conference that I had been at. And you know what it is to live in a city with a small to mid-sized airport. It's Lexington. Let's just say a small airport. (laughs) Many of you have flown into Lexington or you have family members who have done so. And when you fly, when you're booking a flight, you're always after that just elusive thing called the direct flight. (laughs) What you would like when you look at the flights is to book a flight where you actually get on a plane, fly, and when you get off, you're at your destination. Right? That's what you wish for but not so much in a city with a small airport. You are left with the other kind of air travel, the connecting flight. And to have a connecting flight means that you will actually have to go to a whole other city, one that you never really wanted to go to in the first place for what is called a layover. Have you had layovers? Uh, Layovers are where good trips go bad. (laughs) Layovers are where luggage is lost where delays creep in, where you hear phrases like mechanical difficulties and you just want to be home already. So I was flying back here to Lexington, and I had had been to um, my connecting city and was waiting there, and all of a sudden, the miraculous thing happened. Our our flight was called to board. Uh, This long journey was coming to an end, and I learned that I could go out and get on the plane to board for Lexington. And this was one of those airports where you have to go outside to get on the plane, Uh, you walk out and there's that little, we call them puddle jumpers, right? The little plane. The one that looks like when you go outside, you're like in the distance. Is it a toy? Is it a real plane? You have to go upstairs outdoors to get on your plane and duck your head down to get in the little door. And there were several planes in a row outside waiting at this airport. And so as I turned the corner to get on my plane, I, I showed my boarding pass to the airline agent that was standing there and it was kind of dark and rainy in that person just kind of waved me on. They didn't really look at my ticket. And when I finally got up those stairs and down the narrow aisle and had wrestled my bag into the overhead compartment, I looked down and someone was sitting in my seat. Now, I am generally a pretty nice person. Chapel team, neither confirm or deny this, but in general, I'm a pretty nice person. But after a long day of travel, at the end of a long trip That was my seat, and I wasn't just gonna give up on it. So instead of looking around for another seat, I said to the woman sitting there very nicely, I said, Excuse me, you're in my seat. And that's when she said to me, No, I'm not. She pulled out her ticket, her boarding pass, and she showed me the number and letter indicating that this was her seat. And I pulled out my boarding pass with my number and letter on it, and we had the same letter and the same number. They had given us the same seat. And we both stood there in the standoff for just a moment until she sort of grabbed my boarding pass to look at it, and she exclaimed, Lexington, this plane's going to Augusta. No, I said, it is not. This plane is going to Lexington, at which point several nice people in the seats close by exclaimed all at once, we are going to Augusta. I had gotten on the wrong plane. So I had to take my luggage down, wrestle it in shame down the aisle, climb out the door, down the stairs, and behold, right next to it was my plane, the plane to Lexington. Climb the stairs, very, very carefully check with everyone on board, this was the plane to Lexington and settle into my empty seat. But you know, all the way home, I just had these visions of what might have happened if that woman had not been in my seat, well, her seat. What would have happened if I had found an empty seat and just sat down and put my headphones on and gone to sleep and woken up in Augusta, Georgia? What would have happened? I would have been so confused. And when I did finally get home, I have never been so glad to see the Lexington Airport in my whole life. This morning, I want to talk to you about an Old Testament prophet and a New Testament apostle who both had a layover. They had several things in common. First, it's that the call of God came to them. The call of God came to Jonah to go to Nineveh and proclaim the judgment of God. And when the Lord calls you to Nineveh, what do you do? You go to Joppa instead. Jonah chapter 1 says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Get up and go to a great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. And Joppa was, in the language of our day, well, for Jonah, it was the place where he was going to change planes. It was the place where he was going to get in a ship and decide where he would go. And Joppa is a beautiful place. I mean, at least someone thought so, because the word for the city Joppa means beautiful. Joppa was located right on the Mediterranean coast, right around where the modern city of Tel Aviv stands. But Jonah was never supposed to go to beautiful Joppa. God had called him to go to Nineveh, and that's exactly where he didn't want to go. So he went in the opposite direction. He went down to Joppa. The Bible says the port city, his place of layover, his connecting flight to catch a boat to Tarshish. So while Jonah was trying to head to Tarshish, a place as far away as he could think to get from Nineveh, he ended up with a layover in Joppa instead. So Joppa is the last place that Jonah's feet touched dry ground before he got on the boat to run away from God's call. Joppa was Jonah's turning point, the last place that he could have chosen obedience or faithfulness to answering God's call. Joppa was Jonah's last chance to make God his first choice instead of his last resort. I mean, why not go to Nineveh? Come on, Jonah. He detested the cruel and ruthless Ninevites. And I've wondered sometime, reading this story, just what the Ninevites had done to him. I mean, Did he grown up hearing stories of their cruelty to his people? Was there a story in Jonah's own family? Had he lost relatives, close people, at the violence of the Ninevites? Whatever it was, Jonah clearly believed that the Ninevites were beyond saving. When we start to believe that anyone is beyond hope, beyond God's grace, that's when we're in danger of being without hope ourselves. And the last thing Jonah wanted to do was head east and preach to the Ninevites. So he got on the ship in the port city of Joppa and headed west. And then comes what I like to call Jonah's vacation Bible school moment. I mean, this is where his fame comes from, right? This is where children throughout the ages have been able to say his name and know his story. He's dumped overboard in a storm by the sailors, and a God-ordained fish swallows him up and puts him in a holy timeout. It's what a timeout is is for. Think about what you've done. Not just for one day, not just for two days, but three days inside a fish. Why three days? I don't think I would have needed longer than three minutes inside a fish to say yes to God and tell him I've changed my mind. I'm ready to go wherever you want. Just get me out of this fish. But Jonah must have been just that stubborn. Now I'm reading this into the text of course. Why why do I think Jonah might have been stubborn? Well it's because I'm stubborn. Because God's never had to just call me once. He always has to come back twice, often three times. What starts as a tap on the shoulder often ends up having to be a sledgehammer for me to answer. So I think Jonah was probably just stubborn enough to need three whole days After one day, just picture Jonah saying to God, "Mm -mm, nope, I would rather stay inside this fish. After two days, just think about Jonah saying, no, God, I would rather sit in this fish than go anywhere near Nineveh. After three days, well, maybe God's word is starting to sound like it makes a little more sense. Three days is enough for Jonah to repent, to change his mind. And so the fish spits him out on dry land. And I could just picture Jonah lying there, covered in fish goo on the shore. And what does God say to him? Arise, get up. Arise, get up, and go to Nineveh. And so he does. Because who wants to see what's next on God's playlist after a fish? So Jonah finally, he goes to Nineveh. He walks around. He proclaims very half-heartedly God's message to Nineveh. He walks into this great city. Here's the very inspiring message he has for them. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. That's his great message. That's the best sermon he's got. I call it the half-hearted gospel of bad news. There are clearly more effective strategies than telling people they're going to be wiped out in 40 days. Except maybe there's not. Because it worked. And despite Jonah's half-hearted attitude, the entire city began to listen and repent. Word got to the king, and he declared a citywide fast and repentance. Even the animals in the city were required to fast, and you know it's serious if your animals are fasting, because people might not speak up too much, but try not feeding your pet or your farm animal one meal, two meals, three days, four days. You're going to hear something from them. You will get some troubled reactions in your city. And after their repentance, their fasting God showed his merciful and gracious side just as Jonah was afraid that he would. And Nineveh is spared. And everyone rejoiced. Everyone but Jonah. Even if God can forgive and doesn't hold on to offense at these people's sins, Jonah holds on. He holds on to bitterness and anger At these Ninevites, these evil people who are now worshipers of God, just like him. He holds on to his anger at God himself. And in the end, he's ticked off, not just at the Ninevites, but ticked off at the very gracious nature of God. And what fascinates me in this story is just how ineffective Jonah is. And just how powerful God is. Because it doesn't matter how ineffective Jonah is. God's going to get his message through. I mean, are you ever hesitant to talk to someone about God in your life? To to bring it up with a stranger or worse yet, a close family member? To share the word of God with them? Something about how God wants to be part of their, their life? Are you ever worried about how awkward it might get? Or how you might mess it up? Or you might not be the perfect vessel for that message? No worries. Jonah proves it to us. It doesn't matter how awkward it is or imperfect it is, God can use it. Jonah is a story of a prophet who preaches in spite of his listeners, in spite of his bitterness, and in spite at God. There's no faithfulness in Jonah's obedience, only spite and anger and fear of the fish. It is a reluctant message and a reluctant prophet forced out by a fish. But Jonah is the most effective reluctant prophet I know. A while back, I got to hear a story from one of our own community members about another reluctant prophet, an unlikely person to deliver the good news. Some of you know Molly Yi, Junwen Yi. Molly was a student in our Ph.D. program, married to Richie, mother of the beautiful little Joy. Uh, Molly grew up in China, and one day she was sitting in a college classroom in China. She was an atheist, had grown up not believing in God. And one day, her professor announced that they were going to teach about American culture that day. The professor said, today we're going to learn about American religion. And the religion of America is Christianity. Just like that, cut and dried. As if every American was a Christian. And then the professor began to explain Christianity. He wasn't a believer. This was just another lesson. American commerce, American movies, American culture, American religion like reading from a textbook. Christianity, he said, teaches that Jesus is God in human flesh and that although he was innocent, he died on a cross to take away the sins of the world so that anyone who believes in him can be forgiven of sin and have a relationship with God here on earth and then when they die, they're with God in heaven too. Just like that, like reading from a textbook. Molly says she sat there listening and something came over her. And suddenly she knew that these words were true. She knew that Jesus was real. And she knew that he wanted a relationship with her and loved her and wanted to forgive her. And she put her head down on her desk in the middle of a classroom and prayed to Jesus. And became a Christian right there. I'm Talk about the gospel shared by an unlikely prophet have you ever wondered if God can use you if God can use an atheist professor at a secular university in a communist country to share the truth of the gospel and a beautiful heart like Molly's can hear and understand and believe God can use anyone anywhere even Jonah even you Jonah's half-hearted delivery of a gospel of bad news can bring about the repentance of an entire people, and an atheist professor can bring us Molly Yee, surrounded by Christian community, surrendered to the cross, and faithfully studying for a Ph.D. in Biblical Studies. So it's not that our efforts and our faithfulness and our wholehearted surrender don't matter to God— It's not that God's not aided by our prayers and our attitudes and our faithfulness. I am certain that he is, but God is not going to wait for them. He's not going to be bound by the frailty of human instruments, human weaknesses, and bad attitudes. Scripture tells us if we don't praise him, the very rocks will cry out. But don't you think God would rather use vocal cords created for that purpose Don't you think he'd rather use a human vessel made in his image, restored by his grace, filled with the Holy Spirit, than one telling the truth but not believing it? Centuries after Jonah, God gets another chance to show us just what it looks like to use a reluctant prophet. One day, a man named Cornelius, a Gentile, a Roman centurion, has a vision Here from Acts 10, one day about three in the afternoon, Cornelius had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. And Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. And the angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who's called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. So Cornelius, the Gentile, the centurion, sends off three men to find this man who is called Peter. You remember Peter, the first disciple in rank in all of the lists. The one who walks on water, cuts off a man's ear, denies Jesus as his crucifixion, and is now forgiven, restored, and spreading the good news of the resurrection. They're supposed to go find that Peter, the famous disciple, and bring him to Caesarea. And there's, there's just a few problems with that. One is this. They're summoning Peter, who is a Jew, on behalf of Cornelius, who is a Gentile. Peter, who they've never met, is a man who is not supposed to associate, eat with, or come into a home with Gentiles. And to make matters even more tricky, this Cornelius, who is after Peter to come to his house, where he's not supposed to go, is a Roman centurion. And Peter has pretty recently watched the Romans, even the centurions, execute Jesus. So coming to visit Cornelius' house probably doesn't sound like a very good invitation. It's not an attractive offer, you might say. To Peter, to visit a Gentile home of a Roman centurion and bring the good news of the gospel would be as distasteful as, well, for Jonah to go to Nineveh. So they're told, go get Peter. Bring him back to Cornelius' house. Go get Peter. Where's he staying again? Peter is in Joppa. Joppa, the beautiful Joppa, seldom mentioned in the New Testament, is now going to be the location for another reluctant preacher to decide whether to bring the good news to yet another group of outsiders, this time the Gentiles. Once again, a layover in Joppa is the occasion for a turning point, the location of a life-changing choice, and the choice is this. Is God just for us, for the insiders, those who already know him and worship him? Or is God moving out there to the outsiders too? Is there anyone who is actually beyond God's love, anyone that we're allowed to write off as beyond hope, Anyone that we can consider beyond our time, our love, our efforts, our attention. Maybe the reason God keeps sending reluctant insiders to repugnant outsiders is that he's not just after changing the hearts of the outsiders, but he wants heart change in the insiders as well. And this is how to get it. God's in the business of transformation, not just behavior, but hearts. Not just to those known as sinners, but maybe, maybe the ones who need the heart change are sometimes the ones already known as saints. And while Cornelius's men are on their way to get Peter, Peter is in Joppa on a roof in a house where he receives his own vision, a vision of a sheet being lowered full of all kinds of animals and foods he would consider unclean according to the law. And a voice from God encourages Peter, these are fine, they're okay, go ahead and eat. And when Peter questions the voice, the vision answers him, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And then... Maybe because Peter is just as hard-headed as Jonah and as me, the vision repeats. Not once, not twice, three times. Three days in a fish, three appearances of a vision. And if that connection wasn't strong enough for you already, when the vision is done, Peter hears the Lord speak the exact same words that he spoke to Jonah, covered in fish goo. Get up, arise, and go. And just as he hears these words, as if on cue, there's a knock at the gate and the men that Cornelius sent have arrived, three men. Cornelius's men arrive with an invitation to come and eat and fellowship and share the good news with the Gentiles. All things that Peter has been taught are not acceptable. But if these foods that he's seen, if these things that God has made cannot be called unclean, how much more are people made by God, loved by God, and deserving of Peter's friendship and offering of the gospel? And standing on that rooftop, Peter could have seen the seaport where Jonah got on a ship and went the wrong way. And the same option is available to him. Follow the vision of God and bring God's message to all the people, or limit your ministry to just those you find worthy, or appealing, or deserving, or easy to reach, or who sit in a committee meeting and tell you that they are your one responsibility, not those outside. Can you limit God's grace? Is that an option? You know, keep hanging out with the people already in God's camp or continue looking outward. That's the choice here. Out of the circles you find yourself comfortable in, gifted to reach, especially good at talking with, familiar with, but maybe to reach out to new circles where you find yourself uncomfortable, ill-equipped, ill at ease. but circles that desperately need God's love. And as if the similarities between Jonah and Peter aren't enough, consider one more embedded in Simon Peter's name. On one occasion, when Peter was following Jesus around, Jesus asked the disciples, Who do people say that I am? And Peter declared boldly, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus offered him this blessing. Blessed are you, Simon son of Jonah for this was revealed to you not by flesh and blood but by my father in heaven what was the name Jesus called him again it was Peter's father's name right what was it Peter's father's name was Jonah Peter is the son of a man named Jonah His choice of whether to keep the gospel to himself or to spread it to those outside the acceptable circles is a choice embedded in Peter's family name. It's his heritage, his birthright. And in a dramatic reversal of Jonah's choice in Joppa, Peter becomes the anti-Jonah. Peter listens to the vision. He goes with the three men. He stands in Cornelius's living room. He proclaims the message of Jesus' love to soldiers and Gentiles, both of whom are supposed to be his enemies. And just like the Ninevites, and just like Molly Yi at a desk in a college classroom in China, they bow right there and believe and accept and follow God, and they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And later on, when Peter has to defend his choice, because boy, does he have to defend his choice of deciding to take the gospel to the outsiders, Peter tells the insiders, the Jewish Christians who are questioning him, he says this in Acts 11, if then God gave them the same gift, the Holy Spirit, that he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? Who am I that I could hinder God? Isn't that exactly what Jonah did? Try to stop God? Jonah's stubbornness actually spread the good news to Nineveh. Peter's faithfulness spread the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles. And guess what, friends? This is is us. This is how we get the gospel, the Gentiles. Without Peter's bold step outside that inner circle, you and I might never have heard the gospel. We don't get that map of the world on the wall with Christianity spreading without Peter's choice to spread God's word to those outsiders. Who am I to hinder God, Peter said. And the place where that decision happened was way before he stood in Cornelius's living room. The place to make the decision was on a rooftop, looking over a seaport, full of ships going lots of directions, in Joppa. So why talk about Joppa? Joppa is not a destination. It is not where you want to go. It's just a layover. It's the connecting flight. They lose your bags in Joppa. Joppa isn't Nineveh. Joppa isn't Caesarea. It's not the place God was calling them to go. But both Jonah and Peter faced a turning point in Joppa. It's a place where they had a chance to pause to consider the call of God, to decide what would they do in response. Joppa is an in-between place, a place between hearing God's call and knowing how to give yourself fully to it. Joppa is the place where you ask yourself, just what plane am I supposed to get on anyway? Joppa is a place to give your heart to God's will so that your feet will move in God's direction, so your life will be given to God's purpose. Joppa is Abram and Sarai being told to leave their land and family and go to a place where, I don't know, God will show you. Joppa is fishermen at their nets, hearing the words of Jesus Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Joshua, Joppa is Joshua at the border of the promised land, saying, Choose this day whom you will serve. Joppa is Jesus in the garden, wanting desperately. For the cup to pass, but saying to the Father, not my will, not that plain, not my will but yours be done. Does any of this sound familiar? Joppa is Asbury Seminary. It's not a place where you go to stay. It's just a place for a layover. It's a temporary space to meet with God that the decisions you make in Joppa will turn your feet for a lifetime. Joppa is the in-between land, the place where you start on your journey, but not the place you'll end up, where you look up at the board and wait for your flight to light up and try hard to listen to God telling you just what flight you're supposed to get on. So many of us came here called to ministry, but unsure of what ministry was supposed to mean or where ministry is on a map, or what people ministry might involve. And we tell ourselves, I don't know, maybe I'm supposed to follow my passion, follow my gifts, follow that tingly feeling I get when I hear words like church planting, or ministry in the marketplace, or a certain kind of counseling practice, or a certain kind of mission field, or a zip code, or a church size, or a platform. But both Jonah and Peter remind us that sometimes God's call comes first. Before our heart and passion for that call develop. Kind of like an arranged marriage. Where we go into the ceremony and move in with our betrothed before falling in love. Which might actually happen over time. And Jonah and Peter are a cautionary tale. You can actually do ministry without ever falling in love. After the episode with the fish goo, Jonah's feet went to Nineveh, but his heart went to Tarshish. It is entirely possible to serve the Lord with your lips and not your heart. Jonah did it. It is entirely possible, and I'm afraid even common, to pastor people, to minister people with your lips and send your heart somewhere else. The longer that you're in ministry, the more scars that you have from ministry, the greater the temptation will be to just send your heart to Tarshish for safekeeping and to let your lips do the talking all by themselves. If we look for something to celebrate in the story of Jonah, we can find it. We celebrate the hearts broken with repentance in the Ninevites, but maybe the heart that God was after all the time was the heart of Jonah, and there is no evidence at the end of this story that God got it. Your heart is going to develop calluses. You feel it already. You can have distance from ministry. You don't have to give your full yes. You can get the degree, sign up for the job, walk into the space, but never really let your heart into it. And you're going to have to address those calluses again and again because vulnerability takes hard work. And God is going to send you again and again to a new people, a new season, a new role, a new Nineveh. And you're going to have to say again, God, break my heart for what breaks yours. Lord, break my heart for what breaks yours. God, don't let me go without breaking my heart for what breaks yours. Do not let me serve you with my lips and not my heart. Because even if everyone else is there, get saved, Lord. I don't want to be the one like Jonah, who is the instrument to preach the gospel, but the only one lost. Layovers can be fun You can throw a party on a layover, have snacks, get to know your fellow layover guests. Layovers can be tough too, can't they? But as far as I can tell, God's call never offers a direct flight. Joppa is as good a place as I know to get ready for the plane, to choose which ship you will take. But it's also a good place for a vision. It's a good place to pay attention and listen for God to knock again, not once, not twice, three times, because you're just that stubborn. To know that what happens to your heart during this layover in Joppa is what's going to determine not just your next steps, but many of your steps for the rest of your life, and also how you'll feel about your destination. Your Nineveh, your call. Your call to someone God loves so deeply that he has not given up on them yet, just like he's not given up on you. And because God hasn't stopped hoping in you, he is knocking and calling again and again. And your flight is always about to board. So arise, get up, and go. Let's pray. Lord, we are a stubborn people, and you knew that. You've told us that again and again. Lord, even as we've answered your call, we have thought about holding parts of ourself back. We've held parts of our heart back. We've avoided the vulnerability of loving deeply. We have licked our wounds and nursed our scars, God, but not turned them over to you. So today, Lord, we pray for broken hearts. Pray for hearts that are soft enough to break. Not just any break, Lord, but along the fault lines that yours broke on the cross. Help us to see people with your eyes, Lord. Call us again, knock again. We're listening, God. We pray for those in this layover time here. We pray for those about to board. We pray for those who have no clue what their flight is. Thank you for being here with us, Jesus. Thank you. Amen.